Listeners, welcome back inside the Feral Zone. I am Renee Coleman, operating under cover of darkness from an undisclosed location. The Feral Zone is the sister podcast to the Troubled Men podcast, and it will appear here in this space from time to time. Some things about it may be similar, and some things uh, will be different. Tonight, we have a very, very special guest. Uh, we've been wanting to get him on for, for a long time. He's an international man of mystery, a world traveler. He's, uh, he's a fantastic band leader, performance artist, filmmaker, actor, author, photographer, dancer. He's uh, one of the founders, along with Alex Chilton, of the unapproachable Panther Burns. Uh, he's had a fantastic career. We'll get into all of that. But without further ado, the great, illustrious Tav Falco. Welcome, Tav. Wow. Well, uh, well, my pleasure, Renee. Uh, what a uh, auspicious introduction. I'm not quite sure I've been, ever had uh, ever have been introduced in such a grandiose manner. Huh. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you not have your 19th birthday with Panther Burns in the dressing room of uh, uptown at a club uptown. What was the name of that club? Uh, the very first gig I did with you was uh, at Tupelo's there on Oak that Street. Was it. Yeah, I believe that was your birthday in there um, that night. Uh, no, that was that was not my birthday, but I did celebrate uh, a birthday with you. It might have been my twentieth birthday in the the dressing room of uh, uh, Club Lingerie in L.A. I think. Oh, wow. On that show, that was quite a, uh, that was uh, quite an over the top uh, art action there at Lingerie Club, the infamous Panther Burns. Uh, and I think Hellcats were on that show too, and Johnny Legend. Hmm. I think it might have been was, a show before that one. I don't think the, the Hellcats had even uh, uh, come into existence at that point. That was, okay, uh, that was the first show in which. Ross wrote his bass drum out into the audience. <laughs> well, well, Ross I, Johnson from Memphis. Sure. Well, well anyway, those lingerie shows were all um, a bit of a happening. Oh yeah, and quite unexpected. What you know, eventually unwound at those gigs. Those two gigs, I think, we did at Lingerie Club. I'm glad in that we were able to celebrate your birthday. So, for those of you in the audience, listen audience who may not know this uh renee coleman was a bass player with panther burns for uh for quite some time he had a tenure in the band yeah so that was my my uh i, I was in uh, music school there at loyola alex had had relocated down to new orleans um you had had come down and and were living here and and looking to uh to do some panther burn gigs and I, and alex uh suggested me and yes that i've i've told the story many times that uh that first gig with panther burns at tupelo's uh we had ross johnson flew down uh jim dickinson flew down 
you and I were rehearsing uh, in Tupelo's in the afternoon. Alex was, I, I think, still uh, performing some janitorial duties there on the side and uh, sweeping up some some broken glass or something. And and uh, at some point, in as you and I were, were rehearsing, Alex came over and spoke some some prophetic and and words that still uh, that I still use to this day, which was he goes, "Hey, Renee." forget about music and just follow Tav. <laughs> and, and it really, it really did have to, I, I had to, had to shift my whole way of thinking, but uh, you know, that's, that's a lesson I, I was able to, to understand and digest. And I got to say that that's, that's something that I have used the entire rest of my career. Well, that was the, um, uh, good advice in terms of, of uh, Tav and Panther Burns because that is the most or the, or the least risky path <laughs> when you follow Tav. If you follow, uh, uh, you know, musical um, uh, learning and music theory, um, you may never really sync up with 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 what Tav does, even if that is humanly possible on <laughs> any any level. Well, and on that gig, by, by the end of the gig, uh, Ross was on his side with the floor time in between his legs, uh, pounding it like a three-year-old. Um, all the guitar amps were turned completely up. I don't know what Dickinson was doing on the other side of the stage, but I was looking around like, oh my God, what, what, what has brought me to this point in my <laughs> life? <laughs> it, was, it was really, uh, you know, I was having a whole realignment uh, just just in in real time of of my expectations in life my my path going forward you know what i where i imagined myself to be and so it was quite an auspicious uh, uh experience for me and and actually did did kind of change the uh the uh the the direction of my life in that uh i left music school Went out on the road with the Panther Burns. I think that that summer uh, we went out uh, opening for the Clash on those infamous uh, opening dates. Their abortive tour of United States. I think we played the first two shows on that tour of theirs. Right, and then we played some some other dates. And and again, the first time I'd ever gone out on the road with a band, and it was it was crazy because you know the the way we traveled. Uh, you know, we, we had, uh, some cars from the sixties and sometimes tires from the seventies, but the, we were in the eighties. So those <laughs> tires didn't necessarily uh, have a lot of life left in them. So it's with the Panther Burns, you, you might have to, uh, you know, hitchhike the last few miles to, to make the gig, but then at the gig, what we tried to do in Athens, wasn't it at the 40 watt club? Right. Right. Both back, tires, both back tires blew out on the Thunderbird. Right. Exactly. 64, 64 Thunderbird. Right. And so, so you Alex got a little depressed over that, but you know, the death changing tires. The only problem was we didn't have a spare tire. Right. So we had one spare tire, but not two. That was it. We had blowouts on both and we had to, um, <clears throat> hitchhike to the next town and get a tire and uh, hitchhike back, <laughs> which I did, but we got to the joint uh, at showtime and, uh, and that bearded sandaled uh, hippie running the 40 Y club said, you're canceled. And we walked through the door. I said, you know, Hey, it, it's time to go on stage and we're ready. Mm -hmm. No, you're good, but you're canceled. 
And I thought, well, am I going to punch this hippie square in the nose right now? Or am I going to have a drink first and do it later? <laughs> well, yes, as I was saying, the, with the Panther Burns, you might have to, uh, you know, uh, scrape up a ride to get to the gig. But then once you got there, you might have like the cramps or REM uh, uh, watching you at your gig. So it was some some hard touring, but uh, in, in rarefied company and some rarefied environments. I'd like to tell the audience, too or share with them the fact that <clears throat> Renee Coleman had a, a tenure in the band that that um, event at Tupelo's only set the stage for a lot to come and which rather culminated in Renee producing the album Return of the Blue Panther for New Rose Records in Paris, which we recorded at the American Studios in in memphis and uh you know we recently we've had a whole bunch of people on the from the 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 panther burns orbit in one way or another you know we had uh ross johnson on we had jim spake on uh uh robert gordon and you know more recently we the last guest was alex green and i was pointing out to alex green that uh that that return of the blue panther record i think that's the first work that he did with the with the panther burns and uh so we were kind of uh crossing paths there alex and i but well, I, I was gonna say with all of these people that i would have on all these 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 uh you know people in this orbit with with everyone each each person would say when are you gonna have tav on and i was like man i'm trying <laughs> i'm trying so so for all yeah, those it's people an it's an orbit all right and a shaky one uh, <laughs> an unstable orbit yeah, a rather erratic. Uh, what do they call those in orbits that um, that do not follow a, uh, a strict path? Aberrant or okay. aberrant? Okay, aberrant is a good aberrant is a good word for oh, yeah. burn orbit. Oh, yeah. Right. Well, going back to those those early days and and uh, you know me meeting up with you, a lot of things I I, I was surprised by. For, for one. Uh, as we were doing those first rehearsals, at some point you you uh, brought me into the the back room of your apartment, and you pulled out uh, this uh, poster that was uh, "Lore of the Panther Burn," and you unfurled it and showed it to me. And I actually have have a photograph of that that I I found somewhere. I'm, I don't know if you still have that piece of artwork, but it had uh, had a. a uh, illustration of a pine cone and a burning panther and the mask and a serpent and you you just showed it to me and didn't really have much explanation for it it was just you wanted me to behold this <laughs> and <laughs> as a as a young music student um looking at it going oh, what is this guy trying to trying to convey here you know <laughs> but Whatever it was, it kind of sunk in, you know. It's like, uh, it, it, it's like, okay, well, this is something kind of ineffable. This is, uh, this is pre-verbal. This, this thing. In a sense, um, that was your only music instruction for the band. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're right. It's the the mask, the panther. Uh, in this case, I had flames coming out its head, the burning panther head, um, the uh, pine cone, and uh, Ophidian lore, the lore of the serpent. Oh. And those are the four 
the four elements of the cult of Dionysius mm-hmm. that I adopted for Pantheburnus, which is a mystical threshold into um, cult lore. So it was written this flag, Lore of the Panther Burns. So that essentially is the Panther Burn tone science icon. Any study of musical theory um, will not lead you to uh, this cult of Dionysius, even though Dionysius is often portrayed with a, with a flute, as was Pan, and um, the semi-mythical deity um at any rate yeah there's musical there's music involved and the music of the cult of dionysius was um ecstatic music ecstatic music played um during the rituals and um orgiastic rites of passage that that sect engaged in in antiquity so in Panther Burns, we thought of bringing that ecstatic music back uh, to people of today and to audiences of today, and then, and also into the creation of our own our own art action. As I said once at the Orpheum Theater in Memphis, where I destroyed my first car uh, in 1978 on stage. You mentioned that famous origin element of the Panther Burns, which was, uh, I guess, the first time Alex saw you perform, Alex Chilton saw you perform, it was uh, on the, the Mud Boy and the Neutrons, Jim Dickinson's uh, group uh, during their set. And Alex told me about this when I first joined the band, that seeing you uh, come out in uh, uh, tails and, and uh, uh, long gloves, playing the, the silver tone guitar, doing a bourgeois blues, and halfway through you whip out in a, a chainsaw and cut the guitar in half. And Alex sitting there watching you going, oh man, I, I got to be in a band with this guy. Well, I had no idea that that footage of that existed and this is way before youtube but now with the advent of youtube all this footage you know shows up places and when i uh had the had robert gordon on the show somehow after that i i looked it up and actually saw that uh that film footage of of that going on and uh the the film footage definitely uh lived up to the story well yes it is on video we we um I brought Billy Magelson's son <clears throat> with our art action video group, Televista, with our own open reel black and white video camera. Hmm. We had our own camera person. We had our own large, large, very large television monitor on stage. I had the silver tone. I had a Bell and Howell motion picture projector speaker on stage. And I had Carlson circa 1955 hi-fi tube amplifier uh, sitting there and I ran the guitar into that amplifier and that speaker and so for the uh, three major television affiliates on stage there with their big video cameras rolling those moths around so they captured everything and 
little William Eggleston captured the event. Point I make the same point I made on stage when the cramps came to town back at the same theater, the nineteen twenty-five Audible House at Main and Bill Street, the grand theater of the Mid South. Our set on the cramp show. <clears throat> My silver tone guitar. The neck became from the body. Mm. Always a, uh, <laughs> always a dubious proposition. Sure. So I, I took that guitar off. It crashed the floor, and it also broke. Uh, you know, wood wire electronics flying everywhere. Right, and I announced to the audience, so we don't need guitars to play this music. It's the same thing with the guitar theme. I continued to do bourgeois blues. Yeah, I played around the police whistle, <laughs> and then promptly passed out, and they carried me off stage. Yes, yes. But yeah, we don't really need guitars. We don't need music theory. Although now, <laughs> I don't want to shock you, but. I've become interested in music theory after all this time. And Renee, I started online lessons in music theory for a guitar. And I've been studying that every night faithfully. I came out on tour this time, this 34-date tour across the country. Studying that every night along with uh, language lessons in Italian, German, and Thai language. Man, Tab. So I'm, I'm trying to, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to, you know, learn something. I mean, you got to learn. Man, and, now, uh, now, now, don't poison your mind with too much uh, musical uh, 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 understanding. You know, I'm beginning to understand the dynamics of music theory. The likelihood of me putting any of this theory in practice <laughs> seems remote for me. Very. Renee, of me actually being able to do anything with this theory because more than likely it's going to remain theory. I have nothing but admiration for those who, who can who can put this theory into practice as they're playing and also the phenomena of, of reading music and reading the, the timing, uh, being able to read, you know, Baroque music and play that uh, with the right timing and so forth and the right notes and uh, all of that, you know, it's, it's very, very impressive. So anyway, um, I just wanted to that regard. Well, nice to have that's 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 uh, it's a lesson to all of us that uh, you know after your your long career, you're 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 not done uh, uh, learning and searching, and uh, you know, well, you you mentioned uh, uh, William Eggleston and and. Just to to touch on some other aspects of your career, you know, going back when you when you were first in Memphis, you were mentioning uh, Televista, and and uh, I don't know if you mentioned Randall Lyons, but uh, he was your 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 partner in, in that Televista. But then you also uh, 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 worked uh, under William Eggleston for for some time, right? That was kind of the that wasn't the beginning of your photographic career as a continuation of it, correct? Then yes, I did work with William Eggleston. Um, after I came to Memphis and I did a lot of work for him in his laboratory also at the Museum of Modern Art in New York but Eggleston's technique was as I mentioned um, he didn't talk about it much he learned different kinds of film 
and what that film would do and its characteristics. And then he learned his camera well enough that, like a guitar player, you don't look at the strings, you just play. And if you're a really good guitar player, uh, look into the eyes of the audience while not at the instrument, or, God forbid, shoegaze. <laughs> Anyhow, um, he knew his camera well. He didn't have to look through, through the view. But what he was interested in and is interested in the aesthetic of taking pictures that affect the mind and soul what art does. His technique is secondary to that. It's, it's a means to an end. Sure. Whether for me, whether it's pictures or writing or working on stage and, or, or making a film, it's, it's all the same song for me. I, I sing one song, and that's the song of the, of the persona, whether mine or if it's another artist, their persona. And, yeah, that's all audiences are really interested in or anyone who looks at art or interested in because – the secret eye of the artist, that is the only interesting part of it. There's about anything else, really. You know, you might dazzle people. You might engage in spectacle. You might launch a trend. But that's sort of on the surface. Yeah, you might make a million dollars doing it, sell a million records. But I'm interested in something else. I'm interested in in what people learn from the artist. And what they learn from the artist is what he has seen and experienced that nobody else has in his own unique way. So it's a very subjective approach. And it's a bit like German expressionism in art and music. And in my mind, this is what Eggleston does, too. That's why his pictures are, on the one hand, inscrutable. So it's the literal medium of it. It appears as a forensic, matter-of-fact slice of reality in one moment, which immediately dies. All photographs are dead things. You know, it lives, you know, like, like you hit a note in music on stage, you hit that note, after it, you have silence or you have another note. But when all that's over, over, man, it's dead and gone. You can record it and retrieve it. And like a photograph is a recording. But that moment in time is gone. Sure. That photograph is a record of something of, of um, an illumination of light that existed for an instant. So it's a dead thing. And you have to come to terms with that. It's dead, yet it's living. It takes you back. It takes you, it takes you back to a moment that once existed. And yet, there's a secret that if you really want to know about that picture, you have to find that secret. And that secret is connected to the person who made the photograph. And so when you see a Eggleston photograph, if you really get serious about that picture, you learn something about him. And that's what makes it fascinating. So, yeah, we don't need guitars to make this music. 
if you want to make the kind of music I make. I can stand up there and howl if I have to. And I've done that upon occasion. And it's almost as effective. Now, I'm not anti-melody or, as I said on Mars Thrasher, a straight talk show on WHBQ television one day when we were, Panther Burns were on there mm-hmm. as the orchestra for the Televista Art Action Group. Right. That TV show. Um, Another uh, classic that uh, that's there on YouTube, the Mar- Marge Thrasher show. Uh, again, uh, straight one of those, talk. Yeah, straight the, talk. WHBQ television, straight talk. One of those I, mythic I, I, uh, events in, in the, uh, the origin story. Go ahead, Tav. Well, this TV host said, um, so you are a uh, proponent of anti-music and anti-art. Um she said, how do you expect to make any money at that? Is there a market for anti-art? And so, well, Marge, um, we're not in this for the money. And as far as markets, markets go, research that and don't much care. So, you know, I've been kind of a fool when it comes to uh, a commercial outlook on things. I don't even like to carry merch on the road. But the band wants to do it. Alex never did it. Um, so anyway, yeah, it puts gas in the tank. Um, hell, I need money as much as anybody. I need more money than most anybody. But when it comes to what I do, um, there's only so much I'll do for money. I will do some things that are, you know, questionable. And there are other things I won't do that are also questionable. Like when Budweiser wanted to put up a sign on our stage when we played at the Memphis Heritage Festival one year. And I said, no, get the sign down. Well, I never played that festival again. It's okay. They didn't have their commercial ad for their hideous whitewashed beer up on stage during my performance and you close the television screens in any funky club I play or you can keep your money and I'll go back to the van little stuff like that right well you know this this relates to something I I I, I an observation I'm looking at over the the whole output of your career you know you have the the panther burns you have your 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 film work uh your your fantastic uh book that you wrote ghost behind the sun really long titled mondo memphis volume one ghost behind the sun splendor Splendor. enigma and death i love it splendor enigma and death yes that was an epic book. It is an epic book, it, Psychogeography of Memphis. Yes, and and I want to get back to that in a second. But but the, the book, uh, you know, the the again the films, all the touring, and I think in the end the real work of art is Tav Falco. You know the the you that's that's your greatest creation is is the the you know multifaceted uh, you know creator of 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 all these these different uh media and 
And, you know, having done that over a long career and, and man, uh, just, just looking at the, at the output as a, in, in, in total, it's overwhelming to have, you must be so, so gratified to, you know, as a, as a young person leaving school in, in Arkansas, you know, setting out on a, on a path of a, a creative path. I mean, could you have envisioned that, that it would lead to all of this? Well, not exactly. Uh, you know, if I weren't so scatterbrained, I would have, um, I could have had a prodigious output. But what I've done, and I meant, I meant to say to you uh, what William Eggleston did advise me when I picked the camera up. He said, he said, find a camera, one camera, and learn how, learn how to use that one. And he said, just start in the middle and begin to work. And he said, and you'll learn about everything that you need to know in order to make a picture. You will find it. Just like William Burroughs wrote, you ask a question long enough and you'll find the answer. It's the question that's important. It's a process. So my own work, um, that's pretty much what I've done. And I came to Memphis when I got out of school from Arkansas to make films and photographs, and I, I did that. And, and then eventually I picked up the devil's six strings, working with what's at hand, because that's what an artist does. You work with what is at hand. So in Memphis, music, it's art. <clears throat> If there are cameras, you work with that. Um, so I began to work with all of these things at once. And in the process, making videos and films and photographs with people around me, with uh, artists around me, with musicians around me, um, and uh, with blues people. I was interested in the blues, country blues particularly. And uh, I made a number of videotapes along with Randall Lyon, the Arkansas poet. We uh, formed an art action video group, Televista. So I began to um, look at the tapes we made of R.L. Burnside, and I began, I, be, I became enchanted with his guitar playing because it was trance music. It was that kind of ecstatic music that went beyond uh, the blues forms that became formulaic after so many years. Uh, Burnside played, and it was a, a lot of African retentions in his music. It was more of a ritual to go hear him. And we uh, videotaped him and his talk and his honky talk out in the... Uh, way out in the country, uh, yeah, near Como, Mississippi. Uh, we were able to capture something. I think nobody's captured in the blues in, in the way we did that night, all night. And the secular, uh, ritualistic, ecstatic music that was played there for some very serious uh, dancers and celebrants. So this became interesting to me, this kind of music, and I started 
trying to play it myself on the guitar, watching the tapes I'd made, the video. And uh, and I went down to the Orpheum Theater that day to the last waltz, as it was called, of Mudboy and the Neutrons, Jim Dickinson's band. That was Vogue at the time, a last waltz performance. They were going to quit after that as a group, but they did not quit. Anyway, I had been working in a in a uh, art action a theater theater group that Randall Lyon and I had also put together called Big Dixie Brick Company, mm-hmm. and we formed parallel to Mudboy and the Neutrons, and so we were on a lot of uh, shows and events with Mudboy, doing our. Uh, kind of mind troop theater work. We had two go-go dancers, strippers, Marsha Hare and Connie Edwards, and Randall and myself. So there was a lot of costumery, a lot of audience confrontation, happenings, provocation, nudity, um, self-penned theatrical interludes and tableaus, a lot of gesture, and uh, that's how I went down and did that destruction of the guitar, because I also did that day uh, one of my characters, the three-legged man uh, on that show, and the tube man, in which I was entwined in uh, yards and yards of clear plastic tubing. And um, But then I did the uh, Eugene Baffle appearance with the electric guitar and the... Uh, bourgeoisie blues that I sang in the style of R.O. Burnside guitar playing. And uh, Home of the Brave, Land of the Free, I Don't Want to Be Mistreated by No Bourgeoisie. I'm in a bourgeois town. Spread the news all around. It's bourgeois blues and they're going to mess with you. That is the actual number that we pulled out uh, at the the end of that second uh, uh, Clash opener 
when the uh, the the students looked like they were going to uh, to riot or or uh, attack. They were us. rioting. They were rioting. Actually, <laughs> they were rioting. You saw the number of fists. <laughs> I mean, there were a lot of people out there. I mean, for us, a lot of people. I'd say at least eight or nine fistfights that broken out at different pockets in the audience. If they'd have had bottles, they'd have killed us. Right. They they hated us so much. And it was like people, a lot of people knew who we were. They were yelling, Tav, get off the stage. All that, you know. So I stopped playing Tina the Go-Go Queen. I stopped trying to entertain them. And I launched into um, bourgeoisie blues with the fuzz tone that's built into my Hawkner guitar from the factory until they took us off stage and said, you got to stop, which seemed to me about 20 minutes. But that was uh, a bourgeois blues, um, about 20 minutes. But, you know, time is suspended uh, when you reach a certain a heightened moment like that, heightened moment like that. And it was so odd that it was Panther Burns who caused the riot that day. Before these hillbilly college students at the University of Knoxville who thought they were some kind of um, East London punk rockers, and dressed up like they thought these London punks would dress and behave, stuffed themselves into that into that uh, small arena. And it was us that they rioted to, and they could hear everything we were playing because they had monitors and speakers out there the size of Volkswagens on that stage. So with our little lamps, just the four of us, that audience heard every breath we made. Well, when the clash hit the stage, they've got three guitar players. They've got stacks of equipment going up. God, I don't know, as far as I can see, you know, stacks of amplifiers. And it was such a huge wad of noise. And, you know, I'm a noise artist, but not that kind. It wasn't the kind of noise you groove on. And so they came out really loud. Like you couldn't hear any kind of melodic overtones whatsoever in this thing. The band seemed to be super depressed. And but the audience, the audience turned into docile little lap dogs when the clash hit the stage. I couldn't believe it. They just stood there, you know, with their paws up, you know, under their chin, lapping that stuff up. Well, I remember after that gig and the and the 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 very visceral reaction that the crowd had to us. That was the the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that. But it was I remember feeling really liberated after the the fact because I thought, well, wow, you know, if things go really bad and the audience really hates you and you still finish the gig and walk off and your mom still loves you and. <laughs> You know, everything's still fine. It's like, okay, that well, it felt good. Yeah, felt cathartic. You know, felt cathartic, and that you really released something 
and you certainly moved a lot of people. And the other situation was that everybody in the clash entourage was in the Panther Burns dressing room. Right. When we came off that stage. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was funny. Well, well, let's pivot back to your, your fantastic book. And, you know, when, when I saw it came out, I was, I was very intrigued and, and got it right away. It's, and I, I read it back then, so it's been a while. But, man, I loved it so much, Tav. It's such a great book, and I, I can't recommend it enough. You, you have such a just very evocative writing style that, that you know, I, I'll try to emulate myself. If I have to write something, I'll, I'll uh, unconsciously try to, like— uh, find my own kind of Tav Falco-esque voice internally. But I, I love the way in, in the, the book you shift uh, characters from the Tav Falco uh, character, you know, going back a uh, hundred years ago, you have Eugene Baffle shows up in there. You, you interweave, uh, you know, historical uh, aspects of, of Arkansas and, and Memphis uh, in with contemporary Pantherburn uh, action and history, and uh, it's 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 just brilliant, man. Well, that book <clears throat> that book took a long time to to write. Actually, it was the research that took a long time. Yeah, it took about three years. If I weren't so scatterbrained, I could have done it sooner. But um. Then when I got that research made and had the content I wanted to have in the book, I didn't know how to write it, Renee. I was just, I was just blocked, and I I couldn't figure out. There's too much to say here. This this book is far more vast mm -hmm. than I had imagined it was going to be when the publisher asked. Asked me to write it and Eric Morris to write volume two, which is pure fiction. Mine is an historical fiction with some uh, passages, cabin notes that are uh, fact <clears throat> within each chapter. So most each chapter starts with a factual essay that I term cabin notes. So that character, Eugene Baffle, was the key this alter ego that I used on that uh, first Orpheum uh, guitar destruction art action piece, bourgeois blues thing. Mm -hmm. That was Eugene Baffle on stage. But then I, I hit upon it, which was simply the time-honored literary device of the time traveler. And that traveler was going to be Eugene Baffle. And when Tav Falco appears in the book, in the book in chapter 13, well, he's in the third person. So the book is written from the first person persona of Eugene Baffle, which is a name that Randall Lyon gave me. Oh, connecting all the dots. Well, one, one thing that really stuck in, in, in my mind from, from the book, and it's a very small thing. I don't know if you did it intentionally. In, in one passage, you, re, you refer to the writer, Edgar Poe. Now, nobody says Edgar, everybody always says Edgar Allan Poe, but someone who knew him personally would call him Edgar Poe. 
And I thought, wow, that's so smart that Tav did that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you appreciate that. But I, I must say that the language I used is a bit florid, but the theme is the American South. And I think the American South has lost much of its voice and, in large part, much of its identity. So I wanted to use my interpretation of the language of Edgar Poe in epistolary form when he's writing letters or thinking of Faulkner and thinking of Horace Walpole in England, the Gothic, Gothic novelists of Gothic fiction, mm. uh, the Castle of Otranto, the mysteries of Udolfo. This kind of writing fascinates me because it's, it's really driven by descriptive and florid descriptive adjectives. Most modern writers eschew adjectives as if they are the plague. But I think, I feel, I enjoy them. I, I, I feel that they uh, enhance language. And um, I'm very interested in language. And even to the point now that I've become disinterested in, in English language. I've become disinterested in English language by comparison with Romance languages like Italian and French. Uh, and now I'm delving into Thai language because I'm living south of Bangkok. And there the characters are completely different. And you have to learn 44 consonants with various, it's a, um, a, a tone, mm -hmm. it's a tonal language. So there are four tones involved in each of those consonants. And the tone, um, the selected tone influences the meaning of that consonant within the word um, or influences the, the meaning of the word. And then there are uh, about 23 vowels. Wow, complex that's a, matrix. That's the language, you know. Sure. And English is, is interesting. And it can be poetic. I think any language can be poetic. But the tonality of Italian is so exciting. Yeah. And it can express everything English can. And it's much more musical. Well, it's the language of music and poetry. Yes. And... Uh, I'm fascinated with it. Uh, I, I would live in Italy. I, I was thinking about, in fact, and tried to live in Rome last year. But I decided I, I just didn't want that urban environment. And it was, you know, expensive, like most of the big cities in Europe um, and most of America. I came back to Europe now, I, the United States now, and I'm just appalled how everything is so expensive here. It's like Europe now. Shocking. And for what you get. And so um, at any rate, um, I'm interested in 
in poetic gradients now in other languages, especially the melodic ones. And I find also Thai to be a very melodic language in this one, especially when they're saying consonants that we do not even remotely have in English. Sure. And it's fascinating, you know, when, you know, A-E-I-O-U, A-E-I-O-U, okay, in Thai they also have uh, the kind of consonant that's uh, yeah. So <laughs> and you hear them saying that within, you know, spoken context, and it's, it really delights my ear to hear that. They got some others too that that are so unique. And um, so anyway, I'm I'm in another process of discovery. Uh, but while we're on the subject of books, uh, I did bring out the book of photographs, um, an iconography of chance. 99 photographs of the evanescent South. That yes. is a book of 99 pictures. And, uh, well, that also sold out in cloth edition, limited edition, as did Ghost Behind the Sun. But the hardcover is still in print. And that can be gotten, as is um, the Memphis book. Uh, that's the first of three books of photographs that I intend to publish. Nice. And last or or several years ago, you came to New Orleans and mm -hmm. uh, did a, a show at the Ogden with with the Pantherburns, and also at the same time had a, a, a show of photographs, and and you were kind of touring. So again, like you're uh, combining several of these these uh, expressions, and it's just part of the the total of you know tav falco it's it's so cool well it's true we came to the ogden in uh, 2012 and there was an exhibition um of 50 photographs uh of a uh, iconography of chance which led to uh the publishing of the 99 photographs in book form <clears throat> but i presented at the ogden uh, in in uh, as a book though at that occasion was the Memphis book, right. and then the book of photographs came later. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, Ogden at the time of printing those fifty photographs, they also <clears throat> um, archivally printed ten folios that we had designed locally to my specifications in New Orleans by Deborah Parkey yes. and her husband. And um, that was a nice, a nice folio leather bound. I picked out the leather folios and there was um, 10 photographs in each folio separated by translucent. Uh, that was um, 40 by 80 centimeter photographs archivally printed in black and white. This whole book is black and white we're speaking about from my original negatives. And um, and the preface I wrote in Paris and the prologue uh, is written by the Spanish photographer in Madrid, Alberto Garcia Alex. And that's an interesting prologue because he met me in Madrid when I came uh, to Black Eye 
to appear on the Poetry and Jazz Festival of Madrid, on which the night I appeared was John Cage, Richard Hell, Lydia Lunch, myself, and two gypsy guitar players playing electric guitar, seated in chairs, and they played blues. Famous gypsy guitar players, but on that night, they played a blues song, and I say song because they did one song for about one hour, and it was all blues. Seamless. And it was super exciting. And then after that folio came out, um, by the Ogden, they sold those out immediately. Well, I should say it took them six weeks. Um, then the book uh, was undertaken, okay. and uh, and then that book came out um, shortly after the exhibition within that year. Nice, nice. and uh, I did okay, and I'm I'm happy with it, and I'm going to bring out um, two more books of photographs. Another reason for moving to Bangkok or south of Bangkok on Wangamot Beach, where I am, is that I could not get a studio in Europe, and I could not get a studio in any city in America of any size. It's not, you know, I'd have to go out to some remote area and uh, find some space I could afford. Whereas where I am, uh, I have... The studio of 91 square meters. It's very nice. In addition to where I'm living on the uh, Gulf of Thailand with um, beautiful white sand going in the ocean, which I every day. Nice. And it's very warm water. It's just a paradise. So when I found that studio, um, I uh, went back to Vienna, packed up all my things, sold my Norton motorcycle. And took that money and made the move and then was able to buy a Royal Enfield. I had enough money to buy a Royal Enfield 650 when I got back to Thailand. And um, then in March, I found that studio. So, um, so yeah, so I had moved my, my, my stuff in March um, from Vienna. And now I'm here. After the tour, I went over to Arkansas to my storage and um, met movers over there and um, I'm having my whole photographic dark room, all of my screen printing. I haven't screen printed a poster uh, since the cruise we did with Nikki Sutton in New Orleans in 97. That was the last screen print I did. So I'm gonna have all my printing equipment to screen print again with my own hands at my studio in Thailand. So I'm gonna be happy to have these facilities having been in storage for so, so many years. And I'll be able to um, delve into that work as time goes on. But um, in due course, I should say. Sure. Um, now, I did uh, select out all of my um, archival materials. And they're sitting in a U-Haul van out here in front of the house I'm staying in Memphis. Because when I get off this telephone, I'm going over to the, to the Memphis room of the Memphis Shelby County Library, where they have an archive on Tav Falco, a professional archive. And I met with them two days ago, and they said, yes, we want all of the 
materials and artifacts you have, bring them here. We want to add it to the archive. So that van, that van is stuffed with posters, audio tapes, videotapes, writings, letters, even clothes that I'm giving to the Memphis room. And they say, they told me at the meeting, they say, you know, we have um, an archive on Jerry Lee, um, but among the musicians, yours is the most elaborate. And they are, uh, it consists of primary materials, which is important for a collection. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have that. So fortunately, uh, uh, a lot of the screen printed and machine printed posters, a lot of the shows you played, Renee, <clears throat> going all the way back to the beginning. Videotapes of Dan Satiri in New York from 1981. But anyway, I'm just giving you an example of the spread of material that is going into this archive today. Wow, tremendous. And, uh, and then my other stuff, um, my tool, you know, my uh, equipment and books, a lot of books, library tables, uh, you know, glass cabinets, all of that's going to to Thailand. You know, it's a big jump, but um, I'm up for a change. I was in Europe for quite a spell. And uh, honestly, I don't think I want to come back and live in the United States. Yeah. So I'm making this, uh, this leap to the extreme orient. Man, I'm happy with the people and the most beautiful girls in the world I've ever seen in my life. And uh, the people are gentle, high level of culture. And, uh, well, yeah, they've got a military junta, but um, it's not what you think of. It's not, it's not a police state. Yeah. In fact, you hardly see police anywhere. And you, what military there is, uh, you hardly see those. You don't see weapons. You don't. You see a lot more in the United States. You don't see any display of arms in this country. You don't see any troops. You don't see any maneuvers. Uh, so anyway, they're keeping the lid on. Okay. And uh, it's the kingdom. It's the royal kingdom of Thailand. So they've always had a kingdom, and uh, they've never been occupied. There was ne they were never colonized, I should say. So it's it's pure Thai, you know. It's not like Cambodia or Vietnam, which had has a French French influence mm -hmm. and an American influence to a degree, um, which was really heinous what the Americans did in those two countries. Sure. Sick, man. Really well, sick. And they want nothing. It's still totalitarian, so-called communism, whatever you want to call that totalitarian government. We want nothing. Right. We only put money into the pockets of Bush contractors in Texas for a few years. That's the only thing America got out of that. And a lot of, like all the other grim, dirty wars they did in uh, you know, Iraq and Iran and, uh, you know, these other places is absolutely absurd. 
Um, anyhow, uh, this is where I'm going. And when I get back to Thailand, I will finish the editing of my movie, my feature movie, the Urania Trilogy. I brought out part one in uh, 2017. I brought that to various Cinematheques theaters. The Urania Trilogy of Intrigue Films, filmed in uh, Vienna and uh, on Lake Otter in Alpine Lake region of Austria and in Venice, Italy. So I brought out part one of these, this intrigue trilogy, and I showed that at various cinematechs and theaters like uh, the American Cinematheque presented that at the uh, Egyptian Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, Anthology Film Archives in New York, Roxy Theater in San Francisco, Silencio in Paris, small cinema, uh, private club. It used to be the um, Triptyque Club in Paris. Then it became Silencio. David Lynch designed a small cinema with 25 seats in there, and he designed a stage. So we... Uh, Formed there on a, 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 a vernissage for an exhibition of Alberto Garcia Alex photographs. And then I went back with Panther Burns. And they wanted part one of the movie. And they put Panther Burns on stage at 10 o'clock that evening. The movie was shown at 7 in the evening. Well, they ended up keeping the movie for a week. It is also black and white. 16 millimeter uh, that I have filmed uh, with uh, Rich, Richard Ploiger, cinematographer from Munich, Germany, and uh, turned out pretty good. Uh, it's so exciting that I, I went ahead and filmed parts two and three. It took a while, but we got it filmed. So the editing process was interrupted when I had to. Uh, make this transition to Thailand. And then also I was starting to edit again when this tour came up. That brings us to the tour. And I, I want to kind of uh, uh, close out on, on uh, briefly touching on this, this tour that you just completed in the U S here. And uh, this was what, like a six week tour of about like 35 dates or something where looking at it ahead of time, and looking at the days you had off and how many one-nighters in a row you had, I thought, oh, my God, that's a brutal tour. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was excited for you. And, and man, looking at all those places and, and getting to, to go out uh, to the, you know, all these, these outposts of the underground and, and make uh, connections with, with all these people that have been influenced by the the Panther Burns and, and your work over the years, that must be so tremendous, huh? To, to, after all these years, this band that you have out, this is a, a crazy bunch of cross pollination. So your, your band you've had for a few years now is a, is a, a band from Rome. Um, I believe they're all there. You have uh, uh, Mario Monterosso. You have uh, uh, Giuseppe, the bass player. Um, Giuseppe uh, San Girardi. 
yes. and Walter Brunetti on drums. Yes, and and so so you have like a a band of Romans uh, and an electric country blues band playing cabaret and tango music. <laughs> it's I, I I love the the uh, the the you know all all the the permutations and and cross pollinations there. We call it cross contamination. Cross contamination, yes, in a, in a beautiful way. So. Um, I, you've had this band for a few trips now. I, I really love the guys. Um, uh, love the way they play. Love the way they they back you up. I I, I have such a warm spot for for the the band continuing and and them, you know, as as players in the band. And you know, Giuseppe and I were were hanging out, and I I realized that in in May it would be my 40th anniversary of starting in the Panther Burns. And Giuseppe is 35 years old, <laughs> so you have <laughs> have a guy in the band who's who was born five years after I started playing in the band. <laughs> well, the beat goes on. I don't um, the Panther Panther Burn beat. Yep. That is. I don't. Um, I don't realize it's been such a great lapse of time since the inception of this band. Uh, for me, it's kind of like a continuum, and um, I, I don't understand this shock that some people feel about this. And even 34 dates, um, you know, that's just a haircut and a shave. <laughs> the brutal part is a day off. You have no place to play that night. But, you know, it's good to rest the voice. For a day, and that was my major concern: was will my voice hold up? Mm. And it did. It held up all the way through. And why? Somehow, I've learned how to breathe these songs and relax my. Even when I want to sing with anxiety or with lovely tonality or with. Uh, you know, a heightened uh, anguish or a joyous uh, ecstasy, I can still relax the throat. And and that comes about by having learned how to breathe the lyrics. And, you know, when you take a break between one tour and several performances and you go back and you start again, it seems like you're always a little better at what you're doing. And... I went out a few tours ago, and all of a sudden, I was singing better than I've ever sang before. And on this tour, Renee, the band, were better than we ever have been. You know, I'm not trying to say, hey, we're great. I'm just saying we have improved exponentially since the last tour. At least that's my feeling on stage. And I feel... We've come to the height of our powers, and we can create now better and deliver better than we ever have. And the band went in today and recorded an instrumental album under the rubric of Panther Burns, just the three of them as a trio at Phillips Studio here in Memphis. Nice. It's going to be something. Yeah, man. Yeah, we hope to bring out a new album, too. Uh, with Tav singing uh, sometime in 2023. But I have to finish my movie. 
and um, and we may be undertaking a musical theater uh, project to uh, uh, for the Cabaret of Daggers album, our our last full length album, which is going to be a, a cabaret theater piece. So I'm not sure how much we can do in 2023. Maybe we can do the album. Maybe we can do the theater piece. And I finish the movie. We're going to try like hell to do it all. Right on, man. As as Alex Green said, uh, when I asked, he, he said he, he ran into y'all in Memphis when, when the Panther Burn stopped on this tour in Memphis. And I said, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, how's it going? That 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 tour looks looks uh, you know, strenuous. And he said, "Man, Tav looked great." He said, "He's just it seems like he's just gliding through it." And I I think that was a a, a beautiful image. And then when I saw you playing, you're playing guitar and you're you're doing tango dance moves while you're playing guitar. <laughs> Tav is just gliding through this. That was that was very uh, accurate. Well, it's because because this band can can play and create anything that I can imagine. They can create they can create a platform to make it happen. They want it like this and they do beautifully and they're they're um, completely uh, elevated by what we do on stage. And their instrumental parts at the beginning of the show and after the show are <clears throat> Absolutely phenomenal. Yes. The way Mario Monterosso plays guitar, he has, um, you know, it's just become exponentially more exciting. The whole group since the tour before and the one before that. So as Segovia says, hey, uh, why stop now? We're imp- I'm improving. Absolutely. Well, God, Tav, this is uh, this has been a, a great uh, podcast here. Thank you so much for for coming on and and being so expansive with us. And and again, I, I have to thank you for pulling me out of music school all those many years ago and setting me on the path that's uh, it's carried me uh, all the way to this point. Well, jolly good. I'm glad you have no regrets, Renee. Oh no, man! Like uh, you know, <laughs> a, a, uh, Laura Chilton saw me there at the show, and she goes, "Oh, Renee, it's so nice that that you still come to these gigs." I, I had to tell her in all all seriousness. I said, "You know, I have a, a, a this band means means a lot to me." You know, as I said to you earlier, I told her, "You know, I, I learned lessons playing with this band from Alex and and you uh, that I that I have used the rest of my career." So. Well, it was always a delight to have you in the group, Renee, and it was a real pleasure, and I learned from you, too, and I appreciate all of your creative effort, and there was a lot, and and all of your effort in our travels, because sometimes there was hardship, and uh, you came through fine. And I still have that white tab collar shirt you sold me. Oh, very good. Out on the road. Well, you know, I, I saw pictures of you and you're wearing a pair of gold slacks that I'm looking at. I was like, I think Tab had those gold slacks when I was in the band. <laughs> I did. I got those in Memphis in 1980. They're shark skin. I bought them from Reminiscence from Jimbo in Memphis. And uh, I had the knee patched and everything because you can't get that material anymore. Oh. And it's got an ear. Quality and it's so early 60s. 
Yeah, it's the same trousers, man. Yeah, and it's like you know, how can I change those? And then I, you know, I got a, I got a cheap suit online from Italy, and I wear that too. It's bronze, mm-hmm. and uh, that and that um, that shark skin sky blue jacket I wear with those gold pant gold right. trousers. I got that at pretty much the same time uh, at a um, underneath the bypass here in Memphis, where every Saturday they, they, they sell clothes like sort of like a yard sale. Mm-hmm. I bought that jacket there. That's also shark skin. You can't get that material now. They say it's shark skin, but it but it's a, a poor imitation. Right. Anyhow, I'm still campaigning those clothes. Yeah, and man. I was even considering uh, at some point, as I mentioned earlier, to give them to the archive in, in Memphis here. I think they still got some more stage time left in them. Oh yeah, I think so. Absolutely. They still look as fresh as the day you uh, you, you got them. <laughs> okay. All right. It's been a real pleasure, well, Renee. Well, thank, and, you, uh, thank you, for Absolutely. And uh, uh, as always, uh, I am Renee Coleman signing off from Inside the Feral Zone. Good night.
Yeah.